Welcome to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church. For more information on Sherwood or Pastor Michael Catt, visit our website at SherwoodBaptist.net. And now, here's Pastor Michael Catt. I want to speak tonight on, are you called to ministry? got a letter this week that I never like to get. Young man's wife, young man who was in our youth group in a church that we served, and his wife wrote me a letter, and I'll not read you all of it, but what she says on page two and three is, I don't know if you've ever, if he ever told you, but I imagine you can tell from his sudden change of plans that Mark's youth ministry job did not go well. They expected miracles out of him, but kept his hands tied so that he felt he was not helping in any of the youth save a few exceptional cases. They pushed him over the edge one night and accused him of all sorts of ridiculous things. We were already making so many sacrifices for him to have this job, and he decided the stress of the finances and the politics was more than he could handle, and he quit. The church paid him so little that we could not pay our bills, yet they hassled him about finding a second job, for they wanted him to work full-time for $125 a week. He has since gone on to do some other things, and she writes her appreciation for us and for Mark from him. I'm, I'm tired of guys calling it quits, but I don't blame them all the time. Because I've seen what churches have done to young men who have walked in with idealistic dreams and visions and believing that God had a plan, and I've watched those plans be destroyed. And I'm not surprised that it's hard for us to find young men who want to go in the ministry. In fact, I've about concluded that the reason why young people are not surrendering to the ministry today is because of the table talk they've heard around their homes. You can't expect your children to serve God if you criticize the servants of God. It'll never happen. In fact, they'll not only turn their back on the church, they'll turn their back on God. Jesus called his disciples in Mark chapter 6 to a ministry. He, in effect, told them to change vocations, that their way of life was going to be different. And in verse 7, we read that he summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs, and he was giving them authority over the unclean spirits, and he instructed them that they should take nothing on their journey except a mere staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belt, but wear sandals and do not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave town. And any place that does not receive you or listen to you, as you go out from there, shake off the dust from the soles of your feet for a testimony against them. And they went out and preached that men should repent. And they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. Father, I pray that tonight you would speak to some hearts and that you would encourage those that you have your hand on for a specific purpose. They would be willing to pay the price and evaluate the cost and put their hands to the plow. Lord, there's 
a time that we need to say that there are folks that need to enlist vocationally. They need to sign up for service and report for duty. And in these days when the ministry is critiqued and criticized and run down and second-guessed, I pray that you would raise up a quality group of people that can somehow rise above it all to make a difference in this world. Lord, we know there are only two things that will last in eternity, and that is the souls of men and the Word of God. So I pray that you would bring out of this message laymen who would be committed to eternal things and others who would vocationally make a commitment to eternal things. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Chuck Swindoll says... I have a friend that I have known and loved for 30 years. During that period of time, we have been inseparable. Our friendship has deepened as my appreciation for this friend has intensified. In recent years, my friend has come upon hard times. We have continued to get along beautifully, but others have begun to misunderstand and malign. It has hurt me to hear all the ugly things being said about my friend, even though my friend has done nothing wrong and has taken the brunt of unfair, exaggerated, and sarcastic remarks, not to mention all the unfounded and caustic accusations. There seems to be no let-up. It has gotten so bad on occasions I've wondered if there can be a full recovery. In spite of all that has been said against my friend, our three-decade commitment remains firm and true. My friend is the ministry. Preachers are the brunt of jokes. You do not see preachers and ministers treated in a good light in the media today. I'm not trying to sound like George Bush or Dan Quayle. I'm just saying the facts are there. Every preacher you ever see in the media is either portrayed as a crook or a sleaze, an Elma Gantry, somebody that's not committed to the cause of Christ, very seldom do you find a television show that would in any way portray the ministry in a positive light. It is criticized in coffee shops. It is downgraded in debate halls. It is run down in offices and in restaurants. The ministry is undergoing a tough time. And I think somebody has to come back and say that there is a proper perspective on ministry something that we need to think about, something that we need to pray about, something that we need to lift up. We need to remind ourselves of the role of the minister in society. Charles Stanley said, Some churches, the way they treat pastors, I wonder if they even deserve one. Men who are leaders in business bring their leadership into the spiritual house of God and cannot humble themselves to be submissive to the spiritual leadership of the man of God. I know some churches like that that don't deserve a pastor. It hurts me when people call me from other churches and say, well, we're at the end of two years. They all hate our pastor. Every two years, we got to change. Got to have somebody new. Got to do something different. 
because they're all mad the honeymoon's over. It breaks my heart when I hear about churches that do things and undermine the ministry of their pastor, hurt the cause of Christ. In fact, I got to thinking that probably none of the 12 disciples would have been good men of ministry in the world's eyes. In fact, I would see a letter being written to Jesus if he had submitted the resumes of his 12 followers going something like this one person has suggested. Thank you for submitting the resumes of the 12 men you have picked for staff positions. All of them have taken our battery of tests. We've also arranged for personality tests and vocational aptitude tests. As a part of our service to the denomination, we make several general observations. It is the staff's opinion that most of your nominees are lacking in background. They lack the educational and vocational aptitude for the type of enterprise you are undertaking. We would recommend that you search for persons of experience and proven capability. Simon Peter shows signs of emotional instability and outburst of anger. Andrew has no qualifications for leadership. James and John place personal interest above company loyalty. Thomas demonstrates a questioning spirit that would undermine morale. You should know that Matthew has been blacklisted by the Better Business Bureau in Jerusalem. Several of your candidates have radical political beliefs. Only Judas shows sign of great potential. His resourcefulness could be put to use. What is the call to ministry? What does it mean to be called to ministry? What does it take? What's involved in it? Jesus is developing his disciples. He's about to send them out in pairs for the first time on the first real missionary outreach. It's two and a half years before Pentecost. And he's about to send these men out to equip them to do what he has been doing himself. But he's multiplying his ministry. They are being ordained by God for ministry. They will have authority over evil spirits. They will heal the sick. And they will preach the gospel. These are different men with all kinds of different backgrounds. And yet they have one common denominator. And that is they are available and obedient. That availability and that obedience to God brings them together. Paul said in Colossians chapter 4, verse 17, Take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord that you may give, that you may fulfill it. That word take heed means to give attention or to concentrate on the ministry that you've received from the Lord. Sometimes people say, Boy, I, Lord, use me. Lord, use me. You know, Lord, the Lord is using every one of us as much as He can. To the maximum of His ability, He's using every one of us tonight. The issue is not, Lord, use me. The issue is, Lord, make me usable. Make me a vessel through whom you can operate. Now, the call to ministry is not a mother call. It's not your mama said, Boy, son, I hope you grow up to be a preacher, and then your papa sent you. It's not a guilt call. It's not a call to try to pay back God for something that you did in your past. All of that was washed away by the blood of Jesus. It's not a guilt call. It's not an others called. I've met men and, and I've said, why, why did God call you into the ministry? He said, because somebody told me one time, you'd be a good preacher. And so I did it because other people told me that. But there was no specific call of God on their life. It's not a matter of gifts or eloquence or education. 
It is a matter of a personal surrender to God. And quite honestly, nobody can make it. Nobody can survive for one day without the knowledge that God has called them. You can't make it. You can't survive. I told you what Jess Moody said this morning. Pastoring a church is like trying to nail jello to a tree. You ever tried to do that? <clears throat> it's a good project just before school starts. Maybe go out and make a pan of jello, get you a nail and a hammer and try to do it. It's an impossible job. It's an impossible job because most of the people you work with are volunteers. And if you ask them to do something they decide they don't want to do it, they tell you, we're not going to do it. It's an impossible job because you've got all kinds of people and you really have no authority except the authority that they give you. It's an impossible job because if you've got 3,000 people, you've got 6,000 different interests. And you can't do it all. Someone has said that being a pastor, you don't get paid for what you do, you get paid for what you put up with. That may be true. In a lot of churches, I know that's true. I've watched men lose their health. I can name a church in Texas right now that's had four pastors. One of them committed suicide. Two of them have had heart attacks, and one of them had an emotional breakdown. And you know what they think the problem is? They think the problem is the men they call. The problem is the church they serve because they're hard. They're driven. They do what Stanley says. They try to bring their business principles into the church and they do not allow for spiritual leadership. The pastor has no say-so because what does he know? All he does is pray all the time. You see, there is a call to ministry that you and I have to be sure of. If somebody is going to surrender to the ministry, I want them to be sure of their call. Whether it's a brief ministry like Amos had, short-term mission, short-term work, or whether it's a lifetime commitment, that all of us are called to ministry. Some are called vocationally. I have defined the call to ministry as the inner conviction prompted by the Holy Spirit, confirmed by the Word, and recognized by the body. Prompted by the Holy Spirit, confirmed by the Word, and recognized by the body. The call to ministry. What does that involve? 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1, Paul said, Therefore, since we have this ministry as received, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. You see, only those people who are called can practice what Mark says in verse 11, that any place that does not receive you, in those kind of places, you've got to be sure of your call. I sign a lot of my letters with 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, for we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your bondservant. You see, the call to ministry is not a call for self-service. It's a call for serving others. It's a call for ministering to others. It's a call for giving out ourselves to others. Jesus called these men, first of all, to himself, and then he sent them out for ministry. I think there's a threefold need today. Number one, I think we need to redefine the role of a minister. We need to redefine the role of a minister. Now, that's not on your note sheet anywhere. This is free. It won't cost you anything. We need to redefine the role of a minister. We have let tradition and society and structure dictate what a minister is supposed to be. Now, I know what my job is. A lot of people that don't, but I know what my job is. I'm to be a pastor-teacher for the equipping of the saints to the building up of the body. 
I know what my role is. That's my job description. I didn't have to get a committee to write it. God wrote it down in eternal scripture for the equipping of the saints. Max Licato, who is one of the most famous writers that we have in Christianity today, says that he surveyed his church board to ask them what they thought the role of the pastor was. And he said consistently, one, two, and three, was to preach and to teach and to lead. And he made this statement. He says, so therefore, knowing how the church feels and knowing what the Bible says, I understand that if I don't make every visit, I don't have to feel guilty about that because that's not what God called me to do. But if I don't preach the Word, I ought to feel bad about that because that's what God called me to do. You see, I believe that the role of the pastor is not to be there for every ingrown toenail. I believe the role of the pastor is to equip the saints to do ministry so that 20 other people will be there when you've got an ingrown toenail. So that they exercise their gifts and do what they're supposed to do and act and respond in a Christ-like way. It is my job to mature and to build up and to edify and to educate the body of Christ. We need to redefine the role of minister. Secondly, we need to restore respect for ministry. We need to restore respect for ministry. Now that doesn't mean that everybody's got to call us brother this or brother that. But there needs to be respect for the office whether it's a pastor or a staff member or whoever it is, there needs to be respect that they hold an office set aside by a church and by the Word of God. Thirdly, we need to remind the minister who called him. We need to remind the minister who called him. Those of us in ministry need to remember who our call is from. And so that leads me to the second characteristic of the call of ministry, and that is the character of minister. First of all, he is a limited man with unlimited power. He is a limited man with unlimited power. It says he was giving them authority. These men had a limited understanding. They had a limited vision. They had a limited uh, amount of abilities, but there was no limit to the power of God. Jesus called them and gave them authority. Now, you remember when we were in 2 Corinthians. Paul said, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. You know, the cat translation reads, we have this treasure in plain old peanut butter jars. The treasure of God is in earthen vessels and plain old peanut butter jars. Why? So that you won't look at the jar, you'll look at the treasure. God never told us to exalt the jar the earthen vessel. God told us to focus on the treasure because God never wants the vessel to interfere with the treasure. He is a limited man with unlimited power. There are a lot of guys today that worry about their vessels. They're worried about how they're going to look if their PR material is just right, if their photograph is the best that it can be, if, if everything fits just like it's supposed to, they try to package themselves and arrange themselves. I, I was with a guy this week, 
And he told me eight churches he had been recommended to. And I asked another preacher, I said, tell me about him. He said, he's always looking to go somewhere else. He's always trying to stay on the edge so he can always move to the next position and go up the ladder. Folks, that's not the call to ministry. That's a man who's forgotten that the power is in the treasure, not in the vessel. I like something Dr. Havner said. He said, I've never heard a sermon from which I didn't get something, but I've had some close calls. <laughs> Boy, I've had some real close calls. Some of my own, I've had some close calls. They say that C.H. Spurgeon went to check out the acoustics in his new auditorium, 10,000-seat auditorium, no sound system. You could hear Spurgeon all the way through the building. And he walked to the pulpit and he said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And a worker in the balcony fell on his knees and asked Jesus to come into his heart. You see, the treasure is in an earthen vessel so that we wouldn't get caught up in a limited man but we would be amazed by the unlimited power that God puts in that man. Not that we are impressed with the man, but that we are impressed that God could do that with a man. That God could take anybody in any situation and make them into a vessel that could be used for His glory. Peter writing in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 11 said, Whoever speaks, let him speak as it were the utterances of God, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. He's a limited man, but he has unlimited power. Folks, there's not a time that I walk into this pulpit that I think I've got it all together. There's not a time that I stand behind this sacred desk and think that I've got all the answers or I've got all the solutions or that my way is the only way or that I'm so adequate that I don't need the Holy Spirit of God. I know that without Him resting on my life and giving unction to the message that it's wasted time for you and me and everybody else. I am a limited man, but when I avail myself to it, I have unlimited power. Number two, he is a submissive man with the supreme message. He is a submissive man with the supreme message. Second Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Titus chapter 2, verse 1 says, But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Now, if you ever want to do some great reading, you ought to read writing done by the old Puritans. John Owen was a great Puritan preacher of the 17th century, and he said, I therefore hold myself bound in conscience and in honor, not even to imagine that I have attained a proper knowledge of any one article of truth, much less to publish it, unless through the Holy Spirit I have had such a taste of it in the spiritual sense that I may be able from the heart to say with the psalmist, I have believed, therefore have spoken. We are not told to make up the story. We are not told to make up the truth. We are told what we are to preach. We are to preach the Word. He is a submissive person with a supreme message. 
My goal when I preach is not to impress the intellectuals so that they'll walk up and say, that was a wonderful speech. My goal when I preach is that sinners would walk up and say, thank you for getting me down the road. I don't have any other goal. And the message that I have is only a message that is given to me that is supreme above any message that I could create on my own. The minister has to be a submissive man with a supreme message. Thirdly, he is a man in trouble, but he walks in triumph. Any place that does not receive you or listen to you as you go out from there, shake the dust from the soles of your feet for a testimony against them. He is a man in trouble, but he walks in triumph. The gospel may not be popular, and that's all the more reason for preaching it. You preach the Word of God without apology. You stand on the Word of God without apology, and you'll get yourself in trouble sooner or later. My favorite story that Ron Dunn tells, and you know my affection for Ron and Kay, my favorite story that Ron Dunn tells is they were in a church <clears throat> doing a meeting, and it was just dead as a hammer. In fact, Ron says it was the deadest place he'd ever preached in his life. Nothing was happening. The guy was doing the music with him that had traveled with him for some time. And I mean, nobody had responded. The crowds were bad. There were just a few little pockets of a dozen or so people here and there. And nothing was really going on. It was just it was one of those weeks that you just, and I've been there before. It's one of those weeks when you just counting the hours to Wednesday night when you can get in your car and say to the pastor, No, no, I won't take any more of your time or your money. I'll leave right after the service is over Wednesday night because you just want to get out of there. And I mean, there are some places when you walk out and you literally shake the dust off your feet. And it was one of those kind of weeks. And Ron said, as I sat on the platform, we extended the invitation on Wednesday night. I noticed this lady, and she came down and talked to the preacher. And for some reason, this preacher was crazy enough to let this lady speak. And she got some obscure verse out of the Old Testament. I mean, some things, she pulled it out of context. She grabbed it out of the sky somewhere from la-la land somewhere, and she grabbed it down, and she exhorted and rebuked everybody in the congregation, pointed her finger and said, now, you folks need to come down here and repent. Well, nobody did, but, you know, one or two people came down. and Then she got some other obscure verse from the Lord knows where. She got probably out of the Apocrypha somewhere, and, you know, she's pulling all this out, and she's coming down, and she's rebuking all these people, and she's pounding and everything, and she's in, and a couple of people coming. You women, you need to come down, and she's just pounding everything. Well, Ron's sitting on the platform, and the guy doing the music walks over and sits down by him and says, Ron, you, you think this is of God? Ron said, I said, I don't know, and I don't care. It's the first sign of life I've seen all week. <laughs> he told me, he said, you know, I decided that night, I didn't care what happened, I would never, ever go back to that church. But he did, because about three years later, the Lord called me to pastor that church. <laughs> Not this one, okay? Well, <laughs> God's got a sense of humor. 
I wrote a few weeks ago in my article that I had one time pastored the First Baptist Church a Trivial Pursuit. And I got a letter from a member of the First Baptist Church of Trivial Pursuit that rebuked me strongly for that article. Now, at the same time, I got a phone call from another member of the First Baptist Church of Trivial Pursuit and found out that the deacons had had a meeting without the pastor being invited, the personnel committee had had a meeting without the pastor being invited, and on a Sunday night in a called business meeting that a deacon had stood up on the floor of the church and called the pastor a liar and a thief and shook his fist in the pastor's face in church in a business meeting. And it was over some stupid little issue, you know, things that Baptists get upset about. And so I called another friend of mine at First Baptist Church of Trivial Pursuit and said, I rest my case. I said, it's the first time I hear from this guy in two years and ten months, and he takes one sentence out of an article, and I don't even name the town or the place where it is, but he knows that I've thrown that rock and that dog's been hit. And so he writes me a letter and blisters me, and so I rest my case that it is the First Baptist Church of Trivial Pursuit because they are always in trouble. They're moving from one disaster to the next. They've dropped 250 in Sunday school the last three years, and they want to know what's the problem. The problem is that they don't want to know God. They want to hold on to their stuff. We are men who are called to minister in times of trouble, but we walk in triumph. Somebody asked me not long after I left there, boy, I bet you're glad to get out of there, aren't you? I said, no, not, not really. Because I saw God move and I saw power there because I am convinced that no matter how hard and how dark it gets, that God is just as faithful when it's hard and when it's dark and when it's lonely as He is when you're riding the mountaintop. Number four, the minister of God is a man with a heavenly commitment to an earthly ministry. He has a heavenly commitment to an earthly ministry. Now the third thing and the last thing is the cost of the ministry. If you answer the call to ministry, it may cost you public favor. Jesus was well known in Nazareth, verses 1 through 6. There was no town in history that has ever been blessed like the little town of Nazareth. Twenty-five years approximately, Jesus lived there, but they rejected him. The bottom line is, is if you're going to accept the cost of ministry, that you have to obey God and let the chips fall where they may. No one... No one is above criticism. But if you're going to be criticized, catch it for doing the right thing and not something stupid. I really try to operate by something, and sometimes I don't do this very well. But I really believe that the truth never needs defending. I get people ask me the strangest things of why I don't do this or why I don't do that or why I don't go here or why I don't go there. And what they don't know is most of that stuff I do or I go, but they just may not have been there when I was there. Or I may have been hindered from going. Folks, if I'm going to be criticized, I want to be criticized for doing the right thing, not doing the thing that gets my public opinion polls up. 
I would not want to be president of the United States based on changing what God had called me to do to get elected, nor would I want to be pastor of the church to change what God has called me to do to keep my popularity rating up. It may cost you public favor. Not everybody's going to rise up and call you blessed, but that's all right. Prejudice will sacrifice the truth because of its source. They rejected the truth because they were too familiar with Jesus to listen to him. And they dishonored God by denying the instrument of power and glory. Jesus and his plan was not in their game plan, and so they rejected it. Not only would it cost you public favor, it can cost you fellowship, verses 7 through 13. It can cost you fellowship. Ministry requires a time commitment. There's no room for laziness in the ministry. There's no room for a lack of commitment to doing your best in the ministry. There's no excuse for a man in the ministry to not work hard. You don't get in the ministry because you want to work easy hours. You get in the ministry because God called you, and that call does not stop at 40 hours. That call goes on sometimes 60, 80, 90 hours a week. You do what you have to do to get the job done, and that can cost you fellowship, and it can make the ministry a very lonely place. Now, this is not a bleeding heart story. I hope you understand that. But ministry is lonely. Because for you to do what God calls you to do in ministry, and I'm trying to do this for people who may be thinking and praying about ministry because you need to know. Ministry is a lonely place. There are people in the ministry who are people persons. I mean, they're gregarious and they get out and they're among people, but there are times when ministry is lonely. And I can tell you that more often than not, the preacher who is the life of the party becomes the death of the prophet. It may cost you fellowship. There are a lot of things I would like to do. But for me to do what I must do, I can't. It's not because I'm trying to be ugly. It's not because I'm trying to be unfriendly. It's not because I don't want to spend time with people. Sometimes that's misread. But for you to be what God calls you to be, you have to sometimes sacrifice fellowship. I don't get to spend the time with the staff that I got to spend a year ago. As the pressures and the responsibilities of this job mount, I get to spend less and less time doing the things that I would like to do, ministering to the staff, pastoring the staff, pastoring the deacons. It gets further and further. The time stretches get more and more. It costs you fellowship. You can't run out and do everything that you want to do. Thirdly, it may cost you your freedom. Verse 14, King Herod heard of it, and his name had become well known, and the people were saying, John the Baptist has risen from the dead, and that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. It may cost you your freedom. You must beware when all men speak well of you. If you want to avoid criticism, you say nothing, you do nothing. You see nothing, you act on nothing. It can cost you your freedom. There's a contract right now out on the life of one of the pastors in Romania. A $150,000 contract for him to be killed. 
The same contract applies to every member of his family. He was the lone man who stood against the tyrants of communism in Romania. And today, you won't hear this on NBC or ABC or CBS or CNN or anything else because they're not interested in that kind of news that a man of God could stand up and be willing to risk his life for the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's not news to them. It ought to be news to us. That a man would be willing to sacrifice his freedom for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Fourthly, it may cost you fatigue. It may cost you fatigue. Those of you that are businessmen understand what I mean. The world is run by tired men. It may cost you fatigue. I never get weary of the ministry, but sometimes I get weary in the ministry. I never get tired of what I do. I get tired in what I'm doing. Now, this is an old survey. It's been around for 20, 30 years now, but they hooked up all kind of apparatus, and I don't know how they did this. I bet this was an interesting sight to see. But they hooked up all kind of monitors and stuff to a preacher to see what kind of energy he would expend in preaching. And after they did all these studies and surveyed and studied different men and different uh, types of men and their preaching, this medical doctor determined that every 30-minute sermon expends as much energy as eight hours of manual labor. A 30-minute sermon expends and takes a toll on the body as much as eight hours of hard manual labor. So that means that today, since I've pretty much kept my time pretty good today, I hope somebody noticed, um, (laughs) that means that today I've worked a 24-hour manual job in addition to whatever I expended in doing new members class for 55 minutes before I came in here. I don't want you to walk up to me and say, Pastor, bless your heart, could we revive you with Vibrant? I'm just saying the ministry is hard. I watch what it does to missionaries on the mission field when they come home. I watch their aging process. They age more than other people. The hard work, the toil, the sweat, the sacrifice that they make costs you fatigue. The traveling, the rough call that they have. I've seen it on their faces. I've watched it wear them down. I've seen people in ministry that are 35 years old that look like they're 50, not because they haven't taken care of themselves, but because they have expended themselves for the gospel of Christ. But I tell you, as tired as I get sometimes, I wouldn't trade it for the world. No place else I'd rather be, nothing else I'd rather do If I won the lottery, I'd pay off Sears and take my wife to McDonald's. But I'm not going to win it because I hadn't bought a ticket, okay? That's the last thing I need. (laughs) B.H. Carroll, who founded Southwestern Seminary, said, I magnify my office. I can say more truthfully every year, I thank God that He put me in this office. I thank Him that He wouldn't let me have any other office, that He shut me up to this glorious work. And when I get home among the blessed on the bank of everlasting deliverance 
and I look back toward time and all of its clouds and sorrows and pain, I expect to stand up and shout for joy that down there in the fog and midst dust and struggle, God let me be a preacher. I magnify my office in life. I magnify it in death, in heaven, whether rich or poor, sick or well, strong or weak, anywhere, everywhere, among all people. Lord God, I am glad that I am a preacher of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church and Pastor Michael Gett. For more information about Sherwood, you can visit our website at sherwoodbaptist.net. If you live or visit in the Albany area, we invite you to worship with us here at Sherwood. Thanks again for listening, and have a great day.